Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. And with Seattle's history in leading the world in the airplane industry, we are going to talk about aviation history today. Here this morning is Corey Graff, the military aviation curator of the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum in Everett. Corey, welcome and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks, Gary. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you because the the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum uh, in Everett, like I said, more accurately, I guess, Painfield. This is a museum that has an important job of keeping our history and heritage alive. So that's something I just I love to keep talking about because it's about us, really, not just a thing or a location in town. It's really about us. Uh, so I'm glad you're here. But before we really get deeper into some of the collection that's there and the upcoming events, I want to talk, you know, a little primer on the museum itself. I'm kind of thinking it's one of those places that around town that people say, oh, yeah, i got to get out there and see that someday. But, you know, they don't always do that. So hopefully we'll get some people out there. How long, let's start with how long you've been around that people have saying, oh, that's kind of cool. It used to be called the Flying Heritage Collection for the longest time, right? That's right. We so had... give us the background starting with that maybe and, and how it got started and how long ago that was you bet it's uh, it's interesting uh it used to be the flying heritage collection we've uh, since expanded into armor as well as airplanes and uh now i have to have two business cards one that folds out <laughs> that has the whole name the flying heritage and combat armor museum uh the the museum was established by uh, uh of course everybody in the northwest knows paul allen right microsoft co-founder and philanthropist and he started collecting aircraft in about 1998 by the time uh 2008 rolled around he had enough to to essentially share them with the public so he opened this museum at Payne field and allowed you to sort of come in and see his private collection of vintage airplanes uh we've grown a lot since then we added a second hangar and we're going to be adding a third hangar i think in the near future and Boy, that's already filled up. Wow! So we have, yeah, so we have tons of, of vintage airplanes. A lot, m- most of them are from the World War II era. Um, some before and some after, as well as vintage armored vehicles and military vehicles. And the cool thing about the collection, besides the fact that they're all restored to immac- immaculate condition, is that most everything in the collection runs drives flies or fires and uh so you're actually able to go out and see these beasts in action that is cool and so the the name flying heritage it, they do fly so these are restored to flying condition right i mean that That's is right. a really cool part of a museum and that is kind of cool about that makes it sets it apart i guess from going to see something that's hanging from a ceiling to watching it take go down a runway take off and come watching it overhead make noise come down and land right that's right that's how you guys display your exhibit that's right you know that's what i tell people is if you wanted to learn all about wild animals you wouldn't go into a taxidermist shop and look at a a stuffed lion on the shelf right you want to go out into the on safari and see and smell and hear and watch that thing in action and so there's nothing like coming to a flying day or a day we're driving vehicles and feeling that sort of thunder in your chest and and smelling the 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 fumes of the exhaust waft over you and hearing the whine of those engines usually there's uh there's no mufflers on those things they're just out there in the open and uh it's quite an amazing experience and the uh, while we're still sort of on the basics, the Flying Heritage Collection, like we said, changed the name to and Combat Armor Museum. When did that take place? And so then 
other things in the collection are not just airplanes, right? Believe it or not, it officially took place yesterday. We what? had our, <laughs> our Tank Fest event, and it was super successful, but we thought, okay, well, that's a, that's a great time to expand from Flying Heritage to the Combat Armor Museum. So uh, we had our, our big vehicle event, drove. Kids love all the big monster right. tanks and things like that. And uh, we decided, okay, that's an excellent day to reveal the new T-shirts and the new hats and the new signage. And so we're, we're officially changed over right now. Okay, so cool. So online, though, we can still find you if people are thinking flyingheritage.com. That's is right. It's a nice shortcut, flyingheritage.com spelled out. And you're on Facebook as well. People can find that, uh, facebook.com slash then they type in flying heritage and they'll find out more about what you guys are doing what you've done tons of pictures and uh, and videos on there etc right absolutely there's all sorts of stuff on there uh most importantly uh the way to wind your way through the, the through the back roads of Payne field to to get to the museum as well as images and and video and and everything about our airplanes and vehicles and while we're talking location yes yeah, south everett Payne field kind of muckle tea of people can put all those together in their head they can find find the way out there but Direction's pretty easy online, flyingheritage.com. That's right. Yeah. We're sort of at the opposite end of the field from the giant Boeing facility. Right. As you know, they, they started building there, I think, in 66. They were making going to make a 747, and that, that uh, started in 69. And we can use that long, long runway. It's great for our performances, and you can come out and stand right on the edge of the runway and see these airplanes fly. Now, as we said, Paul Allen started this with his private collection. Are you a private nonprofit? There's Are a, you a nonprofit? There's a, there's you a, a for-profit and a nonprofit blended together. Okay, so the museum, I'm guessing type of aspect of it is run as a nonprofit. Absolutely. Yeah. By like That's, how a, how are you set up like a foundation? It's, it's or like board? a a five hundred one c three, just a regular a regular nonprofit. And it doesn't museum. cost much for people to come out there to see some of these beautiful. <laughs> yeah, our our events range from free. You can come and see the airplanes fly. For example, at Pacific Theater Day, which is June twenty fourth, or European Theater Day, which is. August 26th. If you want to come and and stand there at Payne Field and watch the airplanes do their do their business, it's uh, it's totally free. If you want to come into the museum, it's just a, a sort of a nominal admission fee, and you get to see some of the the rarest airplanes and vehicles in the world. Well, let's talk about the collection now. So a lot of it did start with military collections, and a lot of people, I guess, I don't know, kept those things running out of what it made, why those things were part of their soul, the people who flew them or built them or ma uh, maintained them. And the war seems to accelerate technology each time there's a, you know, you can go all the way back to the history of war, you know, whether it's developing gunpowder or whatever. But so is that why there all of a sudden, boom, there's a big explosion in, in aviation uh, technology because of the war, right? I G mean, Gary, World War II, I'm thinking yeah, specifically, you, but. Yeah, Gary, you sound like the introduction panels at the museum. <laughs> you're, you're doing your homework quite well. It's Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, we see particularly uh, in the 30s and 40s, right before World War II, this, this strange blend of things that make technology just do these huge leaps. And part of it's political political and, and social, the, just the climate of the world, the rise of fascism and the depression and things like that, as well as sort of the 
advent of new technologies we're talking rockets and radar and some of these other things that are that are huge at the time um, as well as the need uh, just World War II in general brings on the need to be able to better the other other countries and the other uh, the other foes and so we see these this huge leap in technology at the time yeah and so what are some of the uh, maybe the first uh, parts of the collection or maybe the oldest or maybe the I don't know what give me one of your favorites or whatever you like to talk about when you well talk to it's, people it's, about it's interesting actually that leap is great to to illustrate and in, in the oldest airplane in the collection is a 1918 Curtis Jenny it's a, a wooden fabric and wire airplane uh-huh. and we're talking uh, just uh, less than 15 um, about 15 to 18 years later you've got what looks like a, a modern airplane in the supermarine Spitfire it's a it's a, a beautiful uh, semi monocoque essentially the skin holds all the structure together it's it's an airplane similar to airliners you see today so there's a great place to illustrate this huge leap in just a, a decade and a half a generation if you will wow and uh, there's a, there's a whole different type of airplane and a whole different type of performance out of that that so, airplane. What the that's a hundred years old. This Curtis that you what'd you call it? A, yeah, that's a, a Curtis Jenny. It's actually Jenny. a a JN four, which looked like Jenny when they were writing it I out see. on the on the I paper. See. So it's a it's a um, a training airplane that was used in Riverside, California, in, during World War One. Wow, and uh, some of uh, Paul Allen, some of the first. Uh, things he acquired uh, were World War II planes as well, or do you? Yeah, some of the first ones in 1998, the the first group of four that he collected were super iconic airplanes. It was uh, a Spitfire that we've talked about before, the Hawker Hurricane, oh, yes. a Messerschmitt that was lost during the Battle of Britain. It was actually shot down and found many, many years later, as well as a, a, a Soviet-built I-16 fighter airplane. So we have, wow. we have airplanes from five different nations, including the Soviet Union, the U.S., Japan, Germany, and the U.K. So that Hawker Hurricane and the Messerschmitt is 109? Yeah, that's Those right. Those two were the the most prevalent, and you mentioned the Spitfire in the Battle of Britain, World War II's biggest, first biggest real air battle. And uh, you have uh, a D Day uh, commemoration coming up soon, right? That's right. So it's while on we're June talking 10th. Pacific or uh, European theater and World War II, tell us about that event and maybe what D Day. I mean the kind of people that come out and need to learn continue to learn and hear about wow this was a big deal i mean absolutely people, you know it's hard to tell younger people and as the years and generations go by what things meant and how important they were but talk about the d-day commemoration you guys have coming up soon and what, what we'll see there and what it means d-day was the allied invasion of uh occupied europe uh in 1944 and of course we we are all sort of familiar with the saving private ryan scenes of the of the higgins boats the 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 landing, the landing craft yes coming onto the beach and one of the things that we're going to unveil on that day is a, a higgins boat essentially a, a boat that was built in new orleans it's got that drop front um that the soldiers would uh would load out of on the on the uh, right, on uh, the beaches box shaped uh that's right a motorized box and the front would come down mm-hmm. and be the a ramp when people would unload hopefully very quickly yep 
that's that's yep. a Higgins boat, mm-hmm. and you're going to have one of those. We're going to have one. We're going to actually. Uh, we were talking about uh, armor and airplanes, but we're expanding into some of the military vessels as well. Um, they're a little harder to operate, as you might imagine. <laughs> I'll landlocked at Payne Field, but we're going to we're going to exhibit that. And the other really neat piece that's going to be on on unveiled that day is a flag that was from one of the first landing ships at Utah Beach on D-Day. It had an assignment at about, I think it was 6.30, that's a.m., I'm not using the military time, <laughs> but uh, on, on the morning of, of June 6th to uh, launch uh, swimming tanks and was uh, caught under fire and we have the flag from that from that LST that that ship that was launching the tanks. Wow, that's a nice artifact. Yeah. Uh, now, while we're talking about so the D Day commemoration, it D Day was June sixth, nineteen forty four. Right. So Saturday the tenth. Yeah, we're hopping June 10th, right to the weekend. There. Okay. <laughs> Ten o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. For absolutely. Much of the day through the afternoon. Yeah. And you'll okay. be able to see these new artifacts, and we're going to. Uh, have some folks talking about D-Day, lecturing about the history of the of the event, as well as some people that had family members who were there. And l- let me ask about the veterans of World War II and maybe that have seen and driven some of these uh, pieces in your collection, tanks, uh, aircraft, landing craft now. Uh, when they come to the museum, what's kind of you know, discussions do you get to hear from them and, and emotions do they talk about? They're usually really moved. Um, they've they've spent some of the most important years and probably some of the scariest years of their lives with these vehicles or airplanes. And, and many of them are, are, are a bit uh, uh, nonchalant or taciturn about it. They come in and say, Oh yeah, I've got I've got 150 hours in that Hellcat, and oh, I I flew the Corsair and I flew this jet and that, and and you're just like your jaw drops on the floor, and you're like, you're just this old guy. How, you you uh, had a had a life that uh, that you uh, that you uh, did some amazing things, and they'll, they'll tell you great stories, not only uh, just about sort of the performance of the airplane, but usually some amusing story about uh you know some quirk of the airplane that you never knew before so it's it's good to to uh talk to these guys and keep your ears open that's cool so before i move off of that d-day commemoration uh event what will we see different i mean do you guys bring out different parts of your collection for different days what do we see then or yeah you you're gonna figure it you, out th- that day you're going to have a, a collection of of artifacts that that uh were flying or around D-Day. So we'll have uh, some of the vehicles that were associated with D-Day. You'll be able to get up close. Depending on the weather, we'll probably even fly a plane. Um, as you know, June in, in the Pacific Northwest is a little <laughs> iffy. Yeah. So I have to have, always put that little, uh, the legalese at the bottom. Depending on weather and mechanical conditions, we're, well, uh, we're going to fly an airplane. The weather was iffy on D-Day, That's if right. I remember my history right. books. Yeah, I think uh, it was delayed a day because yeah. of that. Okay, so uh, we're talking this morning with Corey Graff. He is the curator at the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum in Everett. It's just off the Muckleteo Speedway, flyingheritage.com. Part of the mission, I guess, of any kind of museum is really the preservation of the past by teaching. Uh, Tell us about the, you got an exhibit there, it's called Why War, and this kind of is a a teachable type of exhibit, right? It's interactive, is it not? That's right. It's it's sort of a, a an 
educational opportunity for everybody that comes in. We, we realize that we're, we're sending these sort of beautiful and deadly machines out on the floor, but there was not as much context as we might want as to what they were used for, what their impact was, and, and sort of the overall philosophical importance. So we decided that a good uh, jumping off point, a good educational opportunity would be to discuss why wars happen and, and what results from it. So we've actually just opened up this why war exhibit and we've we've leaned heavily on, on scholars and, and college professors to help us in sort of answering that huge question of why do wars happen. That <laughs> that could go on for a long time. That's right. I mean, you could spend. I mean, how deep is the uh, information on this? Uh, if it's interactive, that I'm guessing you can keep asking more and more questions. Like, do you get to use a mouse or touch screen and keep going further and further and read different articles or something? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the earmarks, one of the one of the sort of anchors of the exhibit are these giant. 96 inch touchscreens there's essentially a wall it's it's kind of like minority report has come true <laughs> and um each one discusses a uh discusses um one of the wars that the the united states was involved in and we're talking uh revolutionary war through the gulf war and you're able to manipulate the data and and uh see the risk factors and and figure out why the war started as well as explore the, the main event and the and the technology used as well as the pop culture that was going on at the time and so it's a it's quite a deep dive you can spend a, a few hours in there if you'd like wow, to. that does sound cool so you could spend <laughs> and then you wouldn't have time to look at things on the floor in the exhibit so it sounds like it's you got to come back more and more to people do you rotate the collections as well at we the do museum? we do we're getting to the point where we have more artifacts than we have room for and so we've we've worked at at, at having uh, uh, artifacts off-site temporarily and bringing them in, rotating them all the time. This is going to be a big year for military vehicles. Of course, we just changed our name, and uh, we've acquired quite a few rare and amazing ones. So uh, almost every event that we're having this year, something new is going to end up out on the floor. Excellent. Well, let's talk about some of those old vehicles and planes. So what is, I don't know if there's a typical story or not on how they how you find them, how they come to the collection, and restoring them. What Does it take also the the knowledge the an original manual a, a guy who used to work on them i mean to get it like you said you like to get them to restored condition that's got to be as big a part of it and archiving that knowledge as well as the machine itself it's a a huge bit of it is is just having the knowledge on on the way it looked and the way it worked in the past um some of our airplanes on on the one end of the spectrum we've definitely acquired particularly if they're rare uh, a hopeless wreck and built it back from just smashed pieces uh -huh. essentially up through I mean, well, how, how do you where do you start i mean do you where just do replace you replace everything or do you actually use try and use the same thing so you can say this is that plane or it's a replica of that plane or does that matter in a museum like it's it's interesting usually and maybe i'm being a little too dramatic you don't have a, a bucket of parts usually it's it's something that's that's uh, been abandoned um for instance our focal 190 it's a german fighter airplane was abandoned in a forest in russia and so 
obviously it was a little like a motorcycle or car that had been outside uh, for yeah. for decades. But Moss and trees growing through that's it. That's right. And, okay. That's right. But you were able to bring it back. One of our other airplanes, a Russian fighter airplane, was damaged in combat and they landed it on a frozen lake. And when the spring came, Uh-oh. the lake thawed and it sunk into the water. Wow. And they, we were able to recover it from, from essentially underwater in the lake and, and bring it back to life. And, and some airplanes, interestingly enough, on the other end of the spectrum, were still flying. F- uh, for instance, our B-25, it's a medium bomber, was, was in the United States Air Force, and then it was in the Canadian Air Force, and then it was sold to a company that was doing firefighting. And so instead of bombs, they would put fire retardant in the airplane and drop it on forest fires. So an airplane like that which still takes a ton of work to get back into its World War II condition, has sort of been flying its whole life and doesn't know anything else. That's what it does. <laughs> and and so uh, how about those parts, though? Like uh, not just, I, I said the manuals. I don't know if those are still available. How about parts? Do you have to machine your own parts to, a, I don't know, an Allison V12? Or do you... Uh, you they still exist. I don't know. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, so there's sort of a, a hierarchy of what you do to try to, to to restore your airplane. And number one on the list is new old stock parts. New old stock. Yeah, well, so that's a phrase I don't use it's, too much. It's what? essentially like when they make an airplane, they'll make replacement nose wheels and replacement glass and replacement ailerons, particularly for military airplanes that were going to get damaged all the time in, in wartime. And if you're if you're looking in the right places, you can sometimes find warehouses full of of old uh, airplane parts. Wow! Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Like if you found a uh, a whole crate load of tires from Goodyear from 1944, you'd probably be a little suspicious of them. Yeah. However, something like uh, a gun sight that that'll work the same, even though it's it's 70 years old. And so that's your first stop. That's what you're always looking for at the beginning. Now, that doesn't always work. And so we're very interested in the manuals and the engineering drawings of the airplane because with those drawings, you can build the things that you need uh, in, the, in the same fashion as they were made in the 1940s and, and uh, put them in the airplane. And so, yeah, you... you uh, Going back to the new old stock, probably no one in the world gets as excited as I do about <laughs> finding a pallet of German hardware in Berlin. You know, I'm I'm over the moon, and everybody's like, it's just nuts and bolts. And it's like, these are nuts and bolts you can't get anywhere else. Wow. So that sounds like it's investigative uh I don't know, archaeology or going around the world trying to find hidden things That's right. that are going to go on airplanes and tanks and, uh, I don't know, landing craft. Awesome. We're talking to Corey Graff of the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum in Everett this morning uh, about their collection and the, the museum and the way a museum like that can educate us about the past and we'll learn about ourselves uh, again, coming up before we run out of time, I want to make sure we hit some highlights. June 10th is your D-Day commemoration event. Also, June 24th, you said, is a an event about the yeah, Pacific, Pacific Theater. Theater. So we're going to take our airplanes and vehicles that were involved in combat in the Pacific out. So uh, there'll, there'll probably be a Japanese Zero flying, the Hellcat Naval Fighter, the P-40, some of the airplanes like that, Excellent. as well as some of the ground equipment as well. And uh, last few years, in July, you've had an event called Sky Fair. Is that going to happen yeah, again? 
that's July? Yeah, that's the big one. That's uh, July 22nd. And, and did you, I don't know if you do this again or expecting to, you had sort of a mock air to ground battle, didn't you? With- that's right. Well, we try to get reenactors involved. Sometimes we have anti-aircraft guns firing at tanks and, and, uh, airplanes doing mock strafing runs on the crowd and and on the on the uh, vehicles out there and so it's a it's a it's a exciting experience and and you get to see things you don't get to see anywhere else july 22nd then for yep. this year okay and flight of the mosquito is i read on your website that's something what is that going to be so is- the de Havilland mosquito it's a british airplane and and the amazing thing about the the mosquito is it was made almost entirely out of wood oh so this it, mos- uh, now i recall the name the yeah, mosquito okay yeah so it was a an incredibly flat fast light airplane it was used as a fighter and a bomber and a recon airplane during the war um it's a twin engine airplane and there are two flying in the world and ours is the third flying one left in the world and so uh it was rebuilt in new zealand and flew there briefly and we uh boxed it up put it on a ship and brought it over here built it up and uh we're probably going to fly it for the first time sort of the test flights in in the middle of june and it's going to be at um our our uh, sky fair day flying for the public for the first time that sounds awesome okay uh, and you know we've been talking about the machines and the innovations and the changes what a talk to me about history and the sharing i mean you must have tons of school kids come out to a museum like this uh what is it what's the education wing uh, wing okay i did unintentional pun folks uh <laughs> w- w- tell me about that why it's important to educate and what really goes on and and What's shared and, and why? It's interesting. Uh, the, the, one of the things that, that Paul Allen was interested in when he wanted to share the collection is just educate people, get them exposed. And so we have uh, a gamut of educational programs that, that that work for adults as well as kids. Things for adults would be like uh, we've had Warbird 101 sessions where it's like, hey, would you like to come in and change the spark plugs in a P-40 Tomahawk? Or... We want you to service the landing gear, and the, and the the mechanics go through and they teach you how to do things through um, lectures and tours of the machines. You're able to get up close, get inside like a Scud missile launcher, or climb inside the B-25 bomber and get a, a little primer on the history of that airplane. And um, through kids' events, we're talking uh, modeling events, gaming events, flight sims, as well as educational tours. Uh, they put you with docents and have you do activities. And so uh, we, we're, we're trying to do everything to get everyone involved. Uh, of course, if you're a, a male between fi- 35 and 55, you're automatically involved. But if you're a kid, we want to we wanna hook you in as well. That is terrific. It sounds like a lot of fun things. Again, folks, it's one of those places, yeah, i got to go see that. Well, here's your chance. We're giving you a few opportunities here uh, coming up in, in the short term here. June 10th is the D-Day commemoration. June 24th, Pacific uh, Theater Day. July 22nd, Sky Fair. Are you going to f- have some collection flying over Sea Fair? You sometimes do that, right? Over yeah, the lake? you know, it's still actually up in the air, this Sea Fair. In the sea past, Fair's changing all around. Yeah, in the past, we've definitely had airplanes there, and we, we may yet again. And so now let me ask, we're going to run out of time, Corey. Um, people can... 
how is this driven? Memberships? Uh, volunteer, can people volunteer at the museum? Uh, what is it, you know, get people involved, I guess? Absolutely. We're, we're a small organization, and we rely on volunteers, um, particularly on the days that we're doing the events, um, quite heavily because there's a staff of, of 29 people, and, and when you're bringing in several thousand to watch these airplanes, you need all sorts of people to help with all sorts of things. So we definitely have a healthy volunteer corps, and we're looking for docents, tour guides, if you will, to, to be knowledgeable and interested in the airplanes, as well as volunteers that, that want to handle parking and crowd control and things on the days that we're, we're doing events. Membership is a big thing for us. One of the things that I tell people, particularly this time of year, we're early in the flying season. If you get a membership, you get in free to all these events. So it becomes a, you know, a, a, an event, a place you can go several times during the summer and fall months and really make the best of that membership. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that that's cool. Especially, you're right. Get in early for and get your membership for the rest of the year. That's really great. Hey, thank you so much for coming. We are out of time now. We have been talking to Corey Graff. He is the curator of the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum in Everett. And like I said, online at flyingheritage.com and also on Facebook. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Corey. And gosh, a much bigger thanks for the efforts you guys put out in uh, preserving history up there at the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum. Gary, thanks for having me. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community. I'm Kate Daniels. Mental health is obviously fundamental to our overall health and well-being, and yet we know we have so many issues surrounding this, from stigmas for persons with this diagnosis, to sufficient care, to overall understanding, and we can see it in the homeless population on our streets. What to do? How about greater awareness and education? Ashley Fontaine is Executive Director of NAMI Seattle. NAMI. National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're going to meet her now. Ashley Fontaine, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Happy to be here. And I am so grateful for the work that you do and for the work that NAMI, I'm pronouncing that right, isn't it? NAMI? Yes. Well, I always say we'll answer to anything. Some people say NAMI, some people say NAMI. I tend to say NAMI. NAMI. Okay, so it's NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Huge organization, such a critically important organization, because as we will converse about this over the next half hour, our listeners are going to hear how really mental illness has a a factor in so much of our daily life. And one of the problems is that we don't want to talk about it. And that's why we are talking about it this morning. Right, Ashley? Yes, definitely. It's something that uh, there's been a stigma about. And it still seems to be carrying on. But do you think it's lessening at all? Yeah, you know, I have worked with NAMI in Seattle for the last three years. And I was at NAMI Chicago for about four years before that. And I'll say even from the time that I began working at NAMI to now, I definitely have seen some changes. You know, of course, stigma and discrimination are still there, but especially with some more celebrities coming out and talking about their experience with mental health conditions, I think that that has sort of had a snowball effect a little bit where it has helped normalize it for other people, too. And that's what we want to do is to just really realize just how much it affects people and that 
there are so many ways that we can help each other out and help people to live as, uh, quote, normal and productive a life as possible. But we need to all be in this together and not stigmatize or ostracize people. Yeah, exactly. So one of the big things is getting the health care and attention to mental health care. I know over the years it's been something like, okay, someone can get 12 visits a year. Well, that is ridiculous when someone has a serious illness. If you had cancer, you wouldn't be limited to 12 visits a year, correct? Right. We would hope, right? You would get as much treatment as you needed until you were well. Exactly. And that's what happened with the Affordable Care Act. Didn't we then see that we were getting more opportunity for mental health care? Yeah. So actually, a mental health parity law passed back in 2008, but it wasn't really until the implementation of the Affordable Care Act when there was actually some teeth to it. So there, it was part of the 10 essential benefits, um, meaning that basically insurance companies were required to include mental health treatment coverage and it needed to match physical treatment coverage. Um, You know, basically they need to be equal, not just on paper in terms of parity law, but really in practice. And so that has been really significant, hasn't it? Have you had actual experience with people finding that they were able to get the treatment and have the visits that they needed? Yeah, you know, we have heard from a lot of people that when they had insurance previously, but they were limited to, you know, we'll say 12 visits a year even can be generous under some plans. Sometimes people are restricted to as few as eight or 10 visits per year. And so when we're talking about even less than one visit per month, that becomes really challenging, right, when we're dealing with a chronic mental health condition. Um, So that definitely has been improved for people under the Affordable Care Act. One of the things that was not really made better by the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, is reimbursement rates under Medicaid and Medicare. And so you will find that a lot of psychiatrists in particular do not take any insurance insurance at all, Um, in particular Medicaid and Medicare, because the reimbursement rates are so very low. But even, you know, regular marketplace insurance, like some of the big names that everybody recognizes, there are um, providers who won't bill them or they expect their patients basically to bill their own insurance, which is about as silly as it sounds, right? If you're going in for help for a chronic mental health condition, the likelihood that you are able to sort of balance all of that and pay money up front and then hope that your insurance company reimburses you is pretty low, right? Or if you're able to do it when you start, it might not be something that you can maintain for very long. Precisely. And so it's been an issue, it's gotten slightly better, and yet uh, with the threat of this rollback of the Affordable Care Act, what do you think, what do you feel is going to happen? Yeah, well, there's actually been some um, good, well, not so good, really, (laughs) pieces of information that has come out now that the plan and proposal has been out for a little bit. Um, Basically, the American Health Care Act, which is being referred to as the AHCA, was passed on May 4th by the House, and it basically cuts $800 billion with a B from Medicaid over the next 10 years, and that's going to cause really vital mental health services to be slashed. Um, in Washington State alone, 600,000 people are covered under the Medicaid expansion that our state chose to participate in. 
This is so significant. It's, I don't know that we can even underscore it strongly enough how critical this is. If we have good health coverage, we're so fortunate. But think about that, 600,000 people. I mean, even if it were 1,000 people that were going to not have it, but to think of this astronomical number, that is, it, it, doesn't it feel criminal? Yes, very. Well, and so the Congressional Budget Office estimates that 24 million people are going to lose insurance for mental health care nationwide. And the stats are that one in three people who are covered by Medicaid expansion lives with a mental health or substance use condition. So we're looking at, you know, basically the unraveling of Medicaid expansion, which has been crucial for people who have mental health conditions or substance use conditions or both because they unfortunately, frequently go hand in hand, will lose their coverage under Medicaid expansion. And, you know, one of the frustrating pieces about that is it's really looking at our health care budget as a country sort of in a silo, right? As if our health and what we spend on it doesn't influence other areas of spending like education or incarceration. Um, but the reality is that it does. Precisely. And beyond that, it just affects the quality of life of all of us. Take, yeah. for instance, how so many of the people here in our Puget Sound area, we see so many homeless. Aren't a great number of those folks uh, who are homeless suffering with mental illness? Yeah, there's a pretty high co-occurrence. Um, it, you know, there's some different studies that cite different numbers. The one I hear most frequently is that if someone is experiencing homelessness, there's often a basically a 70% chance that they are also living with a mental health or substance use condition. So there's definitely a high correlation between the two. And that's where we see that kind of thing. It's not a silo. It's not that over there. It all weaves in together. We are all impacted by this occurrence. Absolutely. Right. So one of the things, and we're not going to get really political about this, but (laughs) if this really touches our hearts and minds and souls, we know what we need to do. We call our legislators about it, don't we? Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yes. So that is, I think, one of the very key things that we're looking at in terms of mental health, mental illness, and and what is going on. And, And I think perhaps one way that... All of us can really uh, make a difference if we are looking for a way to be involved. You uh, do have membership, so people can find ways to volunteer and and become really active and a, and a strong voice, right? Yeah, exactly. So NAMI is a membership organization. I'm the executive director of NAMI Seattle, but we have 23 other affiliates across the state. So no matter where you live in Washington, there is an affiliate locally to you that you can get involved with. And the great thing about being a member of NAMI is that we are local in your community that you live in. We also have a state office that really focuses on state level legislation. And then we have, you know, the N in NAMI stands for national. So our big national organization does a lot of federal level lobbying and, you know, pushing for stuff like healthcare reform, which, you know, they did manage to get passed last year. And now, we really need to make sure that there's some money attached to it so that those changes that we were so hard won actually come into being in real life with dollars attached. Um, but membership in NAMI means that all of our members get legislative updates, they get action alerts. So, 
if mental health is something that is a particular passion to people who are listening, it's a great way to get, you know, really quick ways to get plugged in and be an advocate. And how do we go about doing that, Ashley? Um, anybody who wants to join NAMI can go to nami.org slash join, and it'll take you straight to the membership page, and it gives you an option to choose what your closest city affiliate is. Great. So we'll mention that again, because I think that that's really so critical. But there's another more, um, well, a fun kind of thing and more imminent coming up uh, in just uh, the the week ahead. On the weekend, we have a chance to gather together and uh, get some exercise and have some fun. So tell us about the walk that's going to happen. Yeah, so the NAMI walk is coming up on Saturday, June 3rd. Uh, We host that over at Kirkland Marina Park in Kirkland. It's a beautiful location. We've had stunning weather for the last couple of years. Hopefully I'm not jinxing us right now. (laughs) And we'll have good weather again this year. Um, It's a 5K. It's really meant to be very inclusive, though. So, you know, we have a halfway turnaround point. So if you're only feeling up to a mile and a half, no need to worry. We can kind of adapt it for all skill and ability levels. Um, And this this is our biggest awareness raising event of the year. Last year, I think we had over about 1,500 people. And, you know, of course, every year we're trying to make it bigger and better. So we really encourage people to come. It's great for families to come and participate. You know, dogs who are well-behaved are welcome. Children are welcome. We have face painters and music. And, you know, it's just a really fun day to raise awareness about mental health and also celebrate people who are in recovery. And so... We can't underscore that enough of how this awareness is so important because no doubt each one of us knows someone, either a family member or a friend, a co-worker, uh, a co-worker's family. It's really uh, like one degree of separation, I would guess. I don't know that yeah. factually. But we really do know that it is so uh what present in our society we need to become aware and understand so that we can be part of the solution right yeah yeah well and that's why we love having this event because it's a really easy entry point you know earlier we were talking about stigma and how challenging it is to sort of end stigma around mental health issues and that's one of the goals of this event is that it's a very easy entry point. It's not intimidating at all. It's really welcoming for everybody. And so that's our hope with the NAMI Walk is that, you know, it's kind of a come one, come all neighborhood kind of event. Right. And I would imagine this is also a fundraiser, is it, Ashley? Yes, of yes. course it is. Of course. Yes. <laughs> so it's our biggest fundraising event and our biggest awareness raising event. Um, one of the really interesting and, and inclusive pieces of it is that it is free to register. So we would never want someone to feel like they can't participate due to financial constraints. Um, but people basically make a team and you can fundraise, you know, I, this will be my seventh NAMI walk, I think. <laughs> I've been doing it since the very beginning of my NAMI career. Um, and, you know, we send it out to people at your partner's workplace or people that you are in the PTA with. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be you individually giving all of the money. Um, and it's just a really fun, you know, we get a little competitive with it. We have a couple team leaders who have been in the top three for the last few years and want to, you know, maintain their <laughs> their reign of top team captaindom. Um, but yeah, so it's a fundraiser and it's also an awareness raiser and both of those things combined just make for a really great fun day. Exactly. And 
the thing about the fundraising, of course, funds are needed for so many things. But what is the primary or what are the, the top primary reasons for the funding? What do you use those dollars for? Sure. So one of the things that really is special about NAMI is that all of the programs and services we offer are free to people who need them. So we have support groups. Those are totally free. We offer classes for family members and for people in recovery. Those are also free. And so that's a big piece of what the NAMI Walks funds is basically unrestricted money to keep making sure that we're able to keep all of our support groups and classes and trainings free for people in the community. What this makes me think of is in terms of someone, well, the family is certainly all involved, but the person dealing with the mental illness is is getting treatment, hopefully, through their medical insurance. But then with support groups, I would imagine then they can come together and find between appointments, if you will, an opportunity to connect with other people and find a way to get a a stronger, better footing uh, in their life? Yeah, exactly. And for people who aren't familiar with NAMI, our model is that everything is peer-based. So if you go to a support group and you have bipolar disorder, that group is led by somebody else who has bipolar disorder and is living with bipolar disorder and managing that illness. Um, If you go to a group as a family member, that group is led by another family member who is supporting someone with a mental illness in their own family. And so there's really some kind of magic that happens in that. So just be in community with other people who have very similar experiences and know that you're not by yourself. You know, that's what we hear really frequently from the families that we work with is that, you know, when we first found this out from my family member or, you know, sort of whatever event brought them to our doors in the first place, they often will say things like, we just felt like we had been dropped on this desert island and we didn't know what to do until we met families at NAMI who also had been through similar things and kind of told us all their tricks of the trade and things that have worked well for their family. And then, you know, I felt like I had this roadmap and like I at least knew a little bit about what to do next. That is such a powerful feeling for the families and for any the individual dealing with a mental illness, someone who has been going down that same path. So you don't have to try and explain yourself and people just think that, well, just snap out of it or get over it. Someone who has that real concrete understanding. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and we get some very interesting descriptors. Sometimes we'll ask, you know, people who are at groups or who are volunteering on our helpline uh, for some some words that they would use to describe NAMI. And one of my favorite ones from one of our lovely volunteers is a safe haven. And that's really how I like to think of NAMI, you know, regardless of whether it's your own illness or a family member or someone else who's close to you, NAMI is a place that you can go and kind of get whatever guidance you need. Oh, that is so perfect. Safe haven. Uh, that feels like a cocoon. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. How perfect. So this is what NAMI offers. Uh, this is uh, so powerful. It's supportive. It's encouraging. It's uh, it just kind of an answer uh, waiting for you if you're having some sort of challenge, don't know where to turn. So there is a helpline that people can call in and find out when and where they can uh, meet up with someone. Is that right, Ashley? 
Um, actually, so our helpline, yes, they can call and find out about support groups, but NAMI Seattle specifically, we have a local helpline that is answered by some of our staff and a lot of our volunteers. And people can call for really any kind of referral information they might need. So sometimes we'll get calls from people who, you know, they're being discharged from the hospital soon and they're looking to connect with a provider when they're back in the community. Or sometimes we get calls specifically about support groups. You know, we take kind of calls of all varieties. So I would say it's not only about our programs and support groups, but also other things that are available in the community, whether that's a therapist or a psychiatrist or you know, people will call us for housing information, um, and we have a lot of resources kind of all over the map in our region. So you're just this wealth of information. So a phone call, but I think probably these days we really look to the Internet a lot. We just hop on our computer and go to NAMI.org, right? Yeah, so NAMI.org will actually take you to our national organization's main website. And so for people who maybe don't live in Seattle and want to find out who their local affiliate is, that's a great place to start. People who are in Seattle or near Seattle, our website is NAMIseattle.org. And we have um, pretty readily accessible information about our support groups and kind of what our programs are and what classes look like and all of that great stuff. Great. So we'll be mentioning that again before we're finished yet this morning, because it's a very important website to check out for so many resources that are going to make our life really be so much better, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So on the downside, though, of what happens with people struggling with mental illness, and it's not understood, and what happens so often... um, uh, on the political or, or political on the police scene is that without that understanding we have seen some terrible tragedies occur can you talk about that for us ashley yeah unfortunately people who live with mental health conditions and who interact with the police are 16 times more likely to be killed during that interaction than the general population and that's pretty astounding right i mean yes. that's not a number that you would likely expect. And if we were talking about some other health condition, it's not a number that would be acceptable. And I think that we can understand what could happen, but then because a person may, with a mental health condition, mental illness, may be acting erratically, so they're not being understood. What's happening then with police departments to change that? Yeah, so locally we've actually... in the city of Seattle, we've made a lot of strides, specifically the Seattle Police Department in their CIT training, which stands for Crisis Intervention Team. And basically they train officers for 40 hours on crisis intervention, how to de-escalate a situation, how to talk to someone when they're experiencing a mental health crisis in a way that is not gonna escalate them further and hopefully will calm them enough so that they will go with the officer to the hospital or, you know, whatever, the crisis solution center willingly rather than, you know, continuing to have sort of an altercation. Um, Since the Seattle Police Department has implemented that, you know, over this last year, they were estimating that they would have 10,000 calls to 911 about mental health crises, and they were pretty much on track to hit that number. So to see how much their policing has changed since they really implemented some of this stuff is pretty amazing. Um, because the Seattle Police Department has been working 
with the Department of Justice since I think 2012 on a consent decree around their use of force and all of that stuff. They have gotten down basically their interactions with people who have mental illness or mental health condition. They are having less than 2% of those cases are experiencing a use of force of any kind, which is an absolutely phenomenal drop. I mean, we're talking, this was the police department that had the Department of Justice come in because their use of force was so high that they felt they had to come in and mandate that they make corrections and changes in the way they were doing their police work. So to see them be able to use CIT training and de-escalation skills to that level of success where now, you know, only 2% of those calls are use of force at all is really amazing. So why is this not... a training that is used in all police forces in all communities across the entire country? Well, some of it is resources. And what I can say for our state is that in 2015, our legislature passed the Doug Ostling Act, which basically mandates eight hours of CIT training for all peace officers across the state. The problem with that is that eight hours is not exactly CIT training. Um, Typically, most CIT training programs are 40 hours, so we're talking a full week where officers are really immersed in the content and they get um, time to do hands-on practice scenarios. So, you know, eight hours is a great start, but it's probably not really the level that we should hope to get to. Eight hours, you know, is better than zero hours, but 40 hours is certainly even better than eight. So my hope is that, you know, over time we'll be able to make some changes and have conversations with our legislators about actually adjusting that bill, and we'll kind of see where that goes. It's great that it's in place at all. I think that was a really strong kind of grassroots community push from some families that had been impacted by their family member basically being killed during a police interaction when they were in crisis. And they got that pushed through, but there's still a little bit of fine-tuning that needs to happen with that. And, you know, as far as other states outside of Washington, a lot of major cities are are using CIT training and have CIT units, and they're kind of, you know, adapting it depending on the needs of their specific community. And I think that is sort of the good and the bad of CIT training is that CIT is not a one-size-fits-all training. The root of CIT came out of Memphis, back in the late 70s when a man who was in crisis was killed by the police there and the response from the community was outrage and rightfully so. And there was a push within their own police department to say, you know, we have to change the way we're doing this. And they really made it a collaborative process where it wasn't just about changing the way that police officers were doing their job and that the police department was doing things But it really became about how does our community as a whole respond to mental health crisis when someone is not well? Is it really sufficient to just call 911 and have the police show up? And so they set up a system where they really involved the providers in their community with police officers. And so it's tough, right? Because, you know, that's sort of a long-winded explanation to explain that it's really more than just training. That's sort of the CIT motto is that it's not just training. It's really about the relationships and the collaboration with other pieces of the system and the police department. Exactly. And you have a story of of a family locally that is connected with <laughs> NAMI that experienced, sadly, this kind of tragedy. Yeah, it was actually just in March. It was 
still very recent. Um, one of our board members, Jen, her family had called. She has a brother who had schizophrenia and had to have that for quite a number of years. And they called for assistance up in Snohomish County. And unfortunately, it seems like they might have got some responders who were not CIT trained, which always heartbreaking when that happens, especially when you know that this program exists. And unfortunately, when they responded to him, it just continued to escalate and they ended up killing him while they were trying to respond to the family in crisis. So it's definitely a topic for me personally. I've worked with CIT trained officers since I was back in Chicago for a number of years. And it hits even closer to home, you know, when someone on your own leadership team experiences that same tragic loss that so many other families, unfortunately, have experienced. And it's especially frustrating for us because our board member is actually a volunteer teacher in one of our programs. And so, unfortunately, she really did all of the things that we would recommend a family member do, like, for example, communicate with the 911 operator or dispatcher to say, you know, my family member or whoever I'm calling about has a mental health condition. You know, these are the symptoms. These are things that have helped in the past when they've been in a crisis before. You know, really just trying to give them as much information as possible. And unfortunately, it really kind of highlighted an area that definitely still needs work. And I know that some of our police departments know this and are trying to work on it. But that really is the communication between our dispatch people who are answering 911 calls and their ability to relay more detailed information to the officers who are out and responding to calls. So that is a piece of communication that is definitely not really where it needs to be. And it's um, it has proven tricky, not just for our police departments here locally, but, you know, in Chicago, that was something they struggled with, too. And so trying to finesse, you know, is it extra training for dispatchers? Is it something else? That's still something that they're trying to tweak and get to a point where it's working really smoothly. And this is where we come in to become more aware find ways that we want to be active and be part of the solution so that no other lives are lost like this, no families are torn apart and and really so much ruined when we could really work together and be educated, be aware, get the funding that is needed. And I think we do that in a number of ways, but one of them uh, would be to get out on this walk on uh, June 3rd, right, Ashley? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, find the awareness there. So once again, the website to get all the information and get active is? They can visit namiseattle.org. Or if you'd like to become a member, you can visit nami.org slash join. Perfect. And please do that. We know mental illness and mental health are right next door to us, if not perhaps something that we ourselves are dealing with. Let's help each other be compassionate and understanding. And Ashley, I think you are really a a great role model for this. You are so obviously passionate and active. So thank you so greatly for taking time with us today to give us these important insights. Well, thank you so much.